Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. I'll begin reading at verse 1. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech ye that you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you are called, with all lowliness and meekness, with longsuffering, forbearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit. In the bond of peace. You say amen to God's word. You may be seated. Ephesians is a, some have said that it's a master portrait of what the church is and what God has done for the church. It has been described by many writers as a great tower or a great piece of marble work, stonework that has been chiseled away at here and there to create a beautiful masterpiece for all the world to gaze upon. What the Apostle Paul does in the book of Ephesians is he outlines, he outlines, he creates an outline for us of what the church looks like. He creates an outline of what the church is, what God did to redeem the church, bring the church into existence, the beauty of the church. He'll go down later in the passage in chapter 5, he'll describe it when he's talking about husband and wife, that Christ did this, that he might present it to himself a glorious church without spot or wrinkle. You do understand that the church is a marvelous piece of work. It is a marvelous piece of work. The amount of labor that Christ put into us, once again, like I said just a few minutes ago, just to get us here this morning is a beautiful thing. It's a portrait. The first chapters first, or of Ephesians 1, Ephesians 2, and Ephesians 3 is that outline. The Apostle Paul goes down and he details all the beautiful things that the church is. Then he gets to chapter 4, and he starts to outline another thing, what the church is to do in light of such a beautiful work. He says in chapter 4, verse 1, I beseech you therefore that you do something. In other words, I encourage you, I beseech you, it's a quite strong word, actually. It's not just encourage it. I plead with you. I plead with you. I'm down on my knees, so to speak. I am begging you to do this. I beseech you that ye walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called. Now, once again, you won't understand the powerfulness, the, the magnitude of that statement unless you first understand what's going on in chapters 1, chapter 2, and chapter 3. You won't understand what a powerful call that is, Brother Benny, until we understand what Christ did for us. What Christ did for us. Now, I don't have time to preach the whole epistle of Ephesians. My focus will be on chapters 4, 5, and a little bit of 6. But to get the point, once again, if you want to know how holy of a life you are to live. And if you want to know the reasons for it, you have got to understand the development of the church. You have got to understand what Christ did 
just to save you. You have got to understand the price he paid. You have got to understand the horribleness of sin. You have got to understand the wickedness that you are a part of. I don't care what you did. If you are in sin, you are a wicked person. The Bible makes that explicitly clear. It does not matter the amount of sin. It does not in some sense matter even what you did. Exactly. But if you are without Christ, you are a wicked person. That is made abundantly clear in the Scripture. All have sinned. That means if you did one sin, you're part of that. All have sinned. And if you've sinned, you've come short of the glory of God. I know I've said it many times, but in our watered-down gospel, we have missed something. We have missed something terribly. We have not shown the depths of sin like they are because we don't show the highness and the holiness of God like we should. We don't show the mark. We don't show what we missed. So it's impossible for us to understand how low of a depth we went when we missed the mark. You have got to know the calling. You have got to know what Christ wanted you to be, what you should have been, before you can know how far you messed up. And the moment you messed up, you're out. Completely. Wholeheartedly. Out. Gone. None. Zilch. Nada. Nowhere in the garden is is available for you. You're kicked out completely out of the presence of God. Now, once again, I do not have time to go through all of that. But for the sake of the message, get it. This vocation wherewith we are called is a high calling, high vocation. There is none like it. There is no office. There is no government agency. There's no administrations. There's no organizations that can ever put a higher calling upon you than your association with the church. None. Now, there are some good organizations in this world. There are some good associations that put a high calling on humanity, that call you to do better, to step up. They will never touch the church. Your greatest, your most stringent requirement in this world, in your lifetime, will be your association with the church. It will require the most of you. It will require you to live the best above everything else. No other association is like it. So Paul says, I am pleading with you. I have done laid out a beautiful case. I have done showed you the grace that God has given unto you. This is what it requires of you. And I'm down on my knees. I beseech ye as the prisoner of the Lord for you to walk worthy of this vocation. Wherewith ye are called. Now he does something in this passage. You'll please note. Verses 2 and verses 3 go directly related to verse 1. You want to know the vocation. You want to know the first step, the bare minimum, square one, point A, point A of working or walking worthy of this vocation. You want to know what that is? Walk worthy. You are called with all lowliness, meekness, with long-suffering, forbearing one another in love. And this is the goal of all that. Why? Endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. 
Now, you have to understand, and once again, if you'll read chapters 1, chapter 2, and chapter 3, and you'll study them out a little bit, you say, well, why, Brother Andrew, does the Apostle Paul go straight to unity as the point one, once again, square one, point A, of walking worthy of the vocation? Because one of the greatest gifts, if not the greatest, in the great total sum of things that Christ has given to the church is unity. What do I mean by that? There were two types of unity that was given to the church. They both meld together where you cannot have one without the other, but there are two types. The first one is that our unity is with Christ. We are nothing if we are not unified with Him. And one of the greatest miraculous things that God has ever done to humanity is that He has reunified Him with God the Father. That is one of the greatest outcomes of the cross that there ever is, is that Christ provided the way for us to be unified again with the Father. He has redeemed us, Brother Benny. We sang it this morning. Redeemed. The redeemed will be gathering in. Well, what does that redeemed mean? It's that we're reunified. We're brought back, bought back by the blood of Jesus Christ. That is one of the greatest. Once again, you could almost encapsulate all of the cross into that one point. Unity again with the Father. That's what we were. That's what the mark is. And we missed that mark originally. Failed it. Brought low. Kicked out of the garden. Kicked out of the presence of God. So now brought back into the presence of God. The vocation we are to walk worthy of is that unity. And the second one is like unto it. Is that there is unity amongst the church. This is a beautiful thing as well. You can go back. Go back with me, please. The earlier passages. Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 2, or verse 4. But God, who is rich in mercy for His great love, wherewith He loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us, that's me and you, together, hath quickened us together with Christ. By grace you are saved. And hath raised us up together and made us to sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. Not only did he redeem us and that he redeemed me and that I can then be reunited with Christ, but I don't sit with Christ by myself. This is a misconception. Sometimes we misquote this verse or misapply this verse. I don't sit with Christ singularly in heavenly, in heavenly places. I sit with the church in heavenly places. My place in Christ is in no way disconnected from the church. In no way whatsoever. I don't get a special spot. I don't get a special place. And I am not connected with Jesus unless I am connected to the church. Because he says, you can read in the passages in chapter 1, 2, and 3 once again. Read in the passages. Read all the different places that the Apostle Paul will tell us that Christ did a great work and that he brought the Gentiles and the Jews together, breaking down that middle wall of partition, creating in one flesh one body. Separa separation was there, and that this was the chosen and these were not. We were not the chosen ones. We were not the one that was chosen by God in the beginning. If Jews were, they had the chosen spot with God. But the beautiful thing about it is he moved both groups. 
He did. Sometimes we only recognize that he moved the Gentiles, but he moved both groups into the church. The Jews are not the church, folks. The nation of Israel is not the church. They're not. The church is the church. And the beautiful thing about it is, not only did he bring Gentiles into the church, he brought Jews into the church. And so now, breaking down the middle wall of partition, where we were two separate people, he created a new body in Christ Jesus, one flesh. That's us, the church. So where now there is no more Jew nor Gentile. There is out in the world, and there is still in the promises that God made to the Jews. Gentiles are not partakers of those, by the way. We will never be partakers of the promises given to the Jewish people. They're not for us. They're for the Jewish people. And even in the eternal ages to come, the Jewish people will always have a special place. Always. The church has got the better one, by the way. But just saying, they do have a special place. But our place, this new body created in Christ Jesus, we sit with him in heavenly places. The Jews don't do that. The Jews don't sit as the bride of Christ. The Jews aren't the bride of Christ. The church is. Brought together in one. You can have a Jewish Christian who gets to partake of both heavenly promises. This is true. But his greatest promise, his greatest blessing, is that he's part of the church and not the Jewish nation. So he has brought down, he has just crumbled them all together, smashed them all together, so to speak, into where now he has one new flesh, Jesus Christ himself. Now, that is the reason that the Apostle Paul leads off this discussion of walking worthy. He leads it off with unity. Why? Because unity is the greatest blessing that God has given to the church. That we might be united with God the Father and that we might be united one with the other. And so he says, if you're going to walk worthy of all the many blessings, just that little passage we, we read just a minute ago, chock full of blessings, united together with Christ, sitting with Him in heavenly places. In the ages to come, He might show forth the kindness that He has given toward us. There are so many blessings wrapped up in just that little statement. Ages to come, we are going to show forth His greatness. Wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. But all that is nothing. All that is absolutely useless if the unity is forsaken. Whether it be unity with God or whether it be unity with the brethren. Because Christ will tell us, if you break the unity with the brethren, you will break the unity with God. One of the abominations that God will not stand for, that is a stench to his nostrils, is somebody that, dis that sows discord among brethren. It's not a pretty picture. It's not a pretty picture at all. So, with all that being said, we have to now we understand, all right, for me to walk worthy of this vocation, for me to make it worth Christ's doings, walking worthy of that. Now, that seems like an impossible task, but it's actually not an impossible task. That God gives us exactly how to do it. We understand that once again, square one, point A, unity. Unity with God and unity with one another has to be protected. It has to be endeavored to keep. Now, that's another strong word, endeavor to keep. It means to fight for. It means to work for, which means it will not happen automatically. Unity with God the Father and unity one with another will not be maintained automatically. 
We need to understand that. You cannot put this thing in co-pilot and expect to be unified with the brethren or unified with God. Now, we understand it. We usually get it. We understand you can't coast through this life and maintain a relationship with God. We understand that. You can't be a good Christian and coast through life. It's an uphill battle. You always got to be pushing. You got to be fighting. You got to be doing this, that, and the other. One that we don't emphasize as much is the fact that you cannot maintain unity with your brethren unless you push. It will not happen automatically. I'm so dis- I don't like the church, or I'm out of the church. I'm, I don't feel connected to the church. Something's happened. You've let something go. You haven't been pushing. You have not been endeavoring. Because if you let it coast, if you just let it coast, you will separate yourself from the brethren. Every single time. How many of us can attest to it? Whether it be personally or we see it in our relations, whether it be family or friends or whatever it is, when you see somebody that is backing away from the church, it only gets worse. Farther and farther they go away from the body. So you have to endeavor, you have to fight, you have to push for this thing. Once again, it will not happen automatically. And you will not protect it and fight for it automatically. A conscious decision has to be made. A conscious decision that says, I will endeavor to keep this unity. I will fight for this. I will put my life on the line for this. I will put everything I have on the line for this. To maintain my unity with God and my unity with the brethren. Now then, if that is the case and you've made such a decision stating that I will do such. That I will walk worthy of the vocation. And if I'm going to walk worthy of the vocation, then I'm going to endeavor to keep the unity. Then you can read on through chapters 4, 5, and 6. And the Apostle Paul will tell you what it takes to maintain that unity. These three chapters are chock full with demands and commands from the Apostle of what it takes to maintain a unified front. What it takes to be, maintain a unified front with God and a unified front with the brethren. And so each one of these, as you go through and you can read, I do not have time to hit every one of them. I will hit a few, but if you go through and you can check them off, check them off, check them off. This is a danger to unity. This is a danger to unity. This is a danger to unity. He'll go or do in such simple things as lie not one to another. Speak the truth in love. That's a simple one. But you have to understand, in the context of the passage, that means that lying one to another is a danger to unity. Let him that stealeth steal no more, but let him work with his hands, providing with his hands. That means that a, a thief is a threat to unity. He'll go on to avoid fornication, avoid the wickedness of the flesh. That means that sexual impurities is a what? A danger to unity. All of these things, remember the context, dangers to unity. He goes down, verse 29 of chapter 4. Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good to the use of edifying, that it may minister grace unto the hearers. Grieve not the Holy Spirit of God. 
whereby ye are sealed unto the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. Be ye kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. In keeping with the context, you can say that corrupt communication is a danger to unity. Bitterness is a danger to unity. Wrath is a danger to unity. Anger, a danger to unity. Clamor, a danger to unity. Evil speaking, danger to unity. Malice, a danger to unity. Grieving the Holy Spirit, danger to unity. Now he will first deal with individuals. We're going to get to groups in a little bit, Lord willing. But the first commands and all that he goes from chapter 4, verse 1, all the way down. Like I said, I do not have time to hit every one. But when he gets down to verse 29, he's already covered a length of passage. He's already covered a length of subjects. It would do us good to take some time and go through those in your spare time. But when he gets down to verse 29, he's dealing still with individuals. He has not gotten to groups. Once again, that's coming a little bit later in chapter 5. But right now, it's on the individual level. What can you do as an individual in the church to promote the unity of the church? Connection, once again, with unity with the Father and one with the other. Now, this is a problem that Christianity has suffered with since the beginning of time. Since we came into existence... This has been a problem, and that is our speaking, our talking, our tongues. James, we know, is one of the earliest passages ever written for the, Christ- for the New Testament, the earliest passages of Scripture written. And what does he, fo- not focus on, but what does he hit in his writings? The tongue. That means... That in the first part of the early church, in the very early formative years of the early church, we struggled with keeping our mouths shut. Christ has not been dead, or not dead, excuse me, God, forgive me. Christ has not been gone that long by the time James is written. A few years, just a few years. And already... Already, the church is fighting and fussing against one another. Now, the bringer of peace himself, love encapsulated, love in flesh, has just been walking amongst the church not too long ago. He has just dwelt with the apostles. There's over 500 of the brethren that has just spent time with him not too long ago. And already the church is fussing at one another. Now this ain't too surprising because when the apostles were with Christ and walking with Christ himself daily, they were fussing at each other. Words were flying all the time. And there was malice amongst brethren. Even when the God of peace himself was walking with them. There was malice between brethren. This is a major problem for the church, and it has always been a major problem for the church. 
So we are not some newfangled thing come on the block dealing with some newfangled sin. Not by any means. This is an issue that has plagued every church that has come into existence. You can guarantee it. Some way, somehow, some, per, some way, somehow, this has been an issue in a church. Because it affects every one of us. Now, the importance of this cannot be overstated. But at the same time, I don't want to blow it out of proportion either. Because it actually it is a very easy fix. A very easy fix. Now, the Apostle James, apostle, he is called an apostle. The Apostle James, when he writes to us in his epistle, will tell us that this, this tongue issue cannot be tamed. It's an unruly thing. We do so great things as we put a little board on the back of a ship and would steer a whole ship by the one little board. We can put a horse, a bridle in a horse's mouth and steer a whole big beast, whole beast, which is a little pull and a little tug. And he likens to the problem of the tongue. This is an issue not easily resolved. But the problem with the tongue is directly related to our selfishness. Directly related to our selfishness. I have yet to meet a person get in trouble, get in trouble, or cause problems because they were saying nice things about somebody else. I've yet to meet the person or see the situation. Because they were in their purest of heart praising somebody. Usually that doesn't cause too many problems. Usually that's not the issue. When all the attention is given over to somebody else, when somebody else is in the limelight, so to speak, and another person out of the goodness of their heart, once again, pure heart, goes up and says, praise God, brother, I'm so happy for you. In other words, in other words, the conversation's not about them. It's about somebody else. That's usually not the place we get in trouble, is it? No, it's not. Usually, the place we get in trouble with our tongues and with our mouths and with the words we're speaking is when we are involved in the conversation and it goes the wrong way. In other words, when your personal character is insulted, when you're aggravated, when you're hurt personally. Once again, we usually don't get big bent, bent out of shape. If somebody that we have, we don't know the person, and they're talking about somebody we don't know, and they're bashing them, it's no big deal to us. I have no, I have no knowledge of that person. I have no knowledge of you. It's no issue. But when they start bashing us, well, we have knowledge of ourselves now, don't we? We know ourselves pretty good, or we think we do. And so they start bashing us. Well, now that's a problem. Or if they start bashing somebody we know that we kind of like at the moment, it kind of flip-flops back and forth depending on the situation. But if we like the person at the moment and that person is bashing them, now that's going to be a problem. So now we got a situation here. Now, if at the time you're not so disposed to like the person and they start bashing them, well, that's usually not a problem for you because you're on the same boat. You're in the same picture with them, in the same camp as them. But it, once again, if you like the person that's being bashed, well, then that's where it causes a problem. You've got to stand up for that, and you've got to put an end to that, and you've got to speak something or say something. So in other words, what are you saying, Brother Andrew? I'm saying that if you would remove selfishness, the tongue would not be an issue. 
if you get self out of the way, you will not have a problem controlling your tongue. We get in trouble when selfishness and our tongue get in the mix. We get in trouble when we start speaking selfish things. Now, is it not true? Once again, it's not a problem. If you're void of selfishness, you can speak all day long. You're not going to hurt nobody. You're not going to harm nobody. Your tongue, your words are going to be what? Ministering words. They're going to be edifying. They're going to be helpful. They're going to be the type of words that build up people and not tear down people. But if you let selfishness get in the mix, I don't care what kind of selfishness, whether you were hurt, whether you're just angry, whether it's you're just offended, whether I don't care what kind of selfishness it is, if you let it in the mix, you will start to damage something and someone. What is that something? Unity. Unity. Know what he says. Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth. Now, that's a definitive statement. Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth. That's not, well, you can let a little trickle out, but be, be careful with it, okay? You can let a little bypass your guard, but, you know, be, be mindful of it because it can't get out of hand. No. Let zilch not a any none. No corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth. In other words, it is wholly against God to speak corrupt communications. Now, what are corrupt communications? It is just that. The word uh, there, corrupt, in the Greek, it means dead. It means rotten, decaying, stinking, rotting away, full of maggots, putrid smelling, awful, terrible. But you all know what usually happens when you have corrupt things in your fridge. If you have corrupt pieces of meat or corrupt vegetables, decaying, rotten, and you place them beside good vegetables or meat, what usually ends up happening? The good meat usually doesn't revive the bad. That's not what happens. No, usually corrupts everything around it. And the same is for corrupt communications. If you let that putrid, vile, evil, rotten language, communication out of your mouth, you will corrupt everything around you. And you will cause everything around you to start to decay and rot away. And if it is unchecked, death is coming. And what death is that? Death of unity, first and foremost. You are doing harm to the unity. This is corrupt communications. He goes on a little bit further. He tells us what the good communication should look like. Use of edifying. Let it build up, not let it tear down. Let it make minister grace unto the hearers. Grieve not the Holy Spirit of God. Now, it seems like he just kind of throws that one in there, don't it? Because a little bit later in the next verse, he's going to go back to let no malice, no evil speaking, no this, that, and the other. And he just kind of throws in, don't grieve the Holy Spirit. But he makes a connection. This is not just thrown in there. Now, we all, we as Pentecostals, we should be. We are concerned with grieving the Holy Spirit. Now, usually what that means is, oh, I didn't listen to him. 
or I didn't hear his voice. Or he told me to do something and I didn't do it, whether it be in a church service or go speak to somebody or this, that, and the other. We consider that, well, that means I've grieved the Holy Spirit. Now, that's true. If you have disobeyed and not obeyed and done what he said to do, you obviously have grieved the Holy Spirit. You disobeyed him. But that's not the context of this passage. He says you've grieved the Holy Ghost if you've let corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth. You have hurt him. Why? Because he is a spirit of unity. The unity that the church has is directly related to the Holy Spirit amongst us. And when corrupt communication proceeds out of the mouth of saints, we do harm to Holy Ghost. We hurt Him. Now this brings it down to a pretty tight level right here. See the importance of words. Now it could be you've done no quote-unquote evil sinful act. You've done nothing with your hands, so to speak. You've not committed some atrocious act, and then you've grieved him. No, words. Simple words coming out of our mouth is enough to grieve the very Holy One Himself. Jesus will tell us, words are so important that you will be judged for every idle one. Words are so important. What you speak and what you talk, what you mean by what you say and what you say is of utmost importance. Once again, so much so that you don't have to do a thing with your hands. But if you say one corrupt communication, one word that is corrupt, you have grieved the Holy Spirit. The only way to fix that one is repentance, by the way. You've got to repent of that. But he goes on. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. Now, this is all still directly connected to corrupt communication. It has other connotations, yes. But all of this is directly related still to that corrupt communication. Corrupt communication is that which is full of bitterness, full of wrath, full of anger, full of evil speaking, full of malice. Evil speaking, evil corrupt communications, corrupt communications out of our mouth usually fall into one of those categories, don't they? They're either full of bitterness and that you're bitter against a person. You're full of wrath and that you're enraged at the immediate moment. You're full of anger. That's the one that has stewed for a while. That's that rage that's kind of built up for a little while. And then you're full of it there. You're full of evil speakings. Now, the evil speakings there is a harsh word. That's blasphemous. But this is not in connection with God. This is where you're blaspheming another person. How do you blaspheme God? You tell untruths. You lie. You speak wrong about Him. You talk about Him in a way that's not true. How can you do that about this person? Well, just exactly the same way. You can't blaspheme people. It don't take a deity to be blasphemed against. You can blaspheme a person's character. You can. It's been done many a times. And usually it happens because we repeat things we know, don't know to be true, whether or not they're true or not. We don't know for sure. But yet we repeat them anyways. Or we start to give 
faults or motives, ascribe motives to people that we don't know to be true. Now, unless you are God and able to peer into the heart and soul of a person exactly when they're doing an act and know for sure I know that man's exact motive and he did that, unless you have that capabilities, you really don't know what they're thinking, do you? Well, Brother Andrew, I've seen them. They do this, they do this, da 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 Do you know for sure that they have an evil heart? Well, I, I, I can't know for sure, but, you know, da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. Do you know for sure they have an evil heart? Well, well then no. Then you, sir, ma'am, have no right to blaspheme their character because you don't know for sure. There may be a misunderstanding here. Now, God can reveal things. He can let people know. And usually we follow the fruit of people. It will reveal itself. But fruit can't be seen in the exact moment that something happens. Fruit takes a long time to develop, and you have got to watch the tree and wait for it to develop. But usually one act against a person is not enough to tell you the fruit. It's not. But they did it. Once again, you do not know you are not God. What does 1 Corinthians chapter 13 tell us about love? Thinketh no evil. Thinketh no evil. It will hold out to the very last before it ascribes evil to a person. It will do everything in its capabilities to make sure, to make sure that I am not mischaracterizing somebody. I will do everything within my power to make sure that this person is just not misunderstood. I will do everything I can. Now, folks, how many times have we opened our mouths against people, whether it be brother or sister in Christ or whether it even be people in the world, and have spoken harshly about them when we don't know for sure? We don't know what they're thinking. We don't know what they're going through. We don't know what they're facing. We don't know what's going through their mind. We don't know the hurt that's in their soul. We don't know what they have had to face. We don't know. But we are sure quick to judge. Brother Al talked about it this morning. That favorite verse of the Bible, Judge not that ye be not judged. Brother Al did a great job in explaining to us what that actually means. What the problem is we do every, almost every time, a lot of times, is that we administer our own judgment. Not backed by scripture, not backed by reality, not backed by evidence or knowledge or proof of any kind. But we administer our own judgment on the spot. Guilty. Guilty. Guilty enough that I'm going to talk about them. Guilty enough that I'm going to start spreading rumors. That's all they are. If you don't know, it's a rumor, folks. All right? If you don't know what it is, true or not, it's a rumor. Cast it aside. But we don't do that. If you, we cast judgment, guilty. I know for a fact he's guilty. Well, I don't really know for a fact. I feel like he's guilty. He's guilty. So we administer judgment on him, and we start spreading the word. Guilty, 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 guilty. 
Everybody we talked to, oh, she's guilty. Oh, he's guilty. He did it. Absolutely. And I know for a fact he meant it against me. Oh, Brother Andrew, I don't say that. But we act like that. We make everything personal. We make everything personal. Brother Woods, he got up there and preached that message. And he studied his whole message, hours and hours of study, just to preach at me. Now, we don't say it like that, but that's the end result of saying such things. They just got it out for me. I know, they did that just to get at me. She said that, he did this, on and on and on we go, just to hurt me. You know how selfish that sounds? You know how self-uppity that sounds? That that person is thinking about you enough to actually go about this whole elaborate scheme to get at you? Or could it be, possibly, that they got caught in a bad spot, they're immature and they have to grow, and that they caught in a bad spot at the moment and they said things that hurt you? Could that be a possibility? Well, yeah, it could be a possibility, Brother Andrew, but I know they did it just to hurt me. I know they did it. I know for a fact. Really, folks, that's not unity. That's not endeavoring to keep some unity around me. No, enduring. Enduring. Be kind one to another. Tenderhearted. Forgiving one another. Even as God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven you. What does endeavoring to keep the unity look like? It means putting off all corrupt communication, all evil speaking, all blasphemies, all malice, all, all rage, all anger, all of this. Putting off all of that and being kind one to another. Tenderhearted. You know what tenderhearted means? Compassionate. For sure wasn't Christ compassionate to us. And Paul does that. He correct, connects it directly with what God did for us. And so if you say, well, I just can't forgive, I got bad news for you. You're out. You're out, folks. Because if you refuse to forgive, Christ for sure ain't going to forgive you. This is all for Christ's sake. God, for Christ's sake, forgave us. In other words, the gift, the plan, the salvation that Christ did, for Christ's sake, God forgave us. That means for Christ's sake, we should forgive one another. We should be tenderhearted one toward another. Forgiving one another. Now, I understand that you can't forgive unless somebody asks for forgiveness. I understand that. But your attitude can be that at the drop of the hat, I will issue forgiveness. The exact moment my heart is full of forgiveness, if this person just comes and asks, it's all theirs. Just like the prodigal son, the father would accept him back at any time, but the son has to come running back to the father. But as soon as the son does, the father runs out and meets him and grabs a hold of him. And just like God, who is rich in mercy, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever should believe in him. In other words, God's already given the gift. He's already provided the forgiveness. All anybody has to do is come and ask for it. 
And in the same way, we as members one of another should be so full of forgiveness that at the drop of the hat, at an instance, without thinking twice about it, we will issue forgiveness. Our hearts are ready. At the moment, right then and there, forgiveness will be issued. Not, well, I need to think about it, brother. Well, let me pray about that. What are you going to pray about? Your answer is forgive. Let it go. Let it go. This is how it works. You say you are a Christian. Then you need to endeavor to keep the unity. And endeavoring to keep the unity means you're going to keep your mouth shut. That when you don't need to speak, you will not speak. That if you don't know something to be true, you will not speak it. And that if you do not know the motives of the person, you will not ascribe evil motives to them. I don't care what they did to you. Well, they hurt me so bad. You don't understand, Brother Andrew? I don't understand because they didn't do it to me. So I might not understand. I'm not the one you got to argue with. You're going to have to take that one up with Jesus. I guarantee you he understands. Because they all did it to him. And at the drop of a hat, Brother Cottle, he will issue forgiveness if they ask. Everyone that drove the stakes through his hands, through the nails through his feet, scorned him, mocked him, spat upon his face. He'd even do it for the Pharisees if they would so get off their hard hearts and come and ask for him. Anybody. God is so full of mercy and grace that he don't want to see anybody perish. Anybody. The worst of humanity, he'd rather save them than condemn them to hell. That's a tall order. You need Holy Ghost for that one, by the way. You need Holy Ghost for that one. If you're going to be like Christ, you have got to have the Spirit of Christ. You cannot achieve this one without the partnership of the Holy Spirit. I can guarantee you that. So, no corrupt communication. Our mouth is going to be shut. Our hearts are going to be full of forgiveness. That means that when we do hear evil speaking, and we do hear corrupt communication, we're going to do one of two things. Distance ourselves from it so that we don't become corrupted or shut it down if possible. Now, there may be situations you are not capable. You are not in position. You do not have authority. You do not have whatever to shut it down. So you distance yourself from it. And you can tell them however you want to. Uh, I'm not going there. I'll see you guys later. I don't want to be a part of that. Nope. I am not going to, and you can be as harsh as you want, really, because you could say, I am not going to be part of tearing apart the unity of the church. That's a good one to throw down right there. That's a good one right there. That'll put a stop to it, if nothing else will. But you have got to understand the severity of it. Do you know you're doing the devil's work when you partake of this? He is the one that sows discord amongst brethren. He's the accuser of the brethren. You are partaking of the devil's work. You're doing what he does on a daily basis. In other words, you're not just giving him a beachhead to land in. You're throwing the door wide open and saying, Here, devil, come on. I'll help you do it. I'll come and help you do it. I'll give you the time. I'll give you the place. I'll give you the target. I'll give you everything. Come on. Come on. Let's do it together. You're working side by side with him. You're not a friend of Christ. You're a friend of the devil when you're working with him. 
This is dangerous positions, folks. This is not something to be taken lightly. This is a dangerous spot to be in, to be letting corrupt communication proceed out of our mouths. This is eternal deciding, deciding eternally here. You will be called into judgment for the words we speak. You will have to go up to God and give an answer for every discussion you had, every word you spoke. Now, I know for a fact there will be some discussions that we cannot explain away because they don't fit with the character of Christ. There will be times, I know, that's why you need to ask for forgiveness. You need to repent. If you know of such situations and such instances that you have partaken of such corrupt communication, repentance is the only answer. It's not, well, I'll do better next time. No, 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 no. You've done damage. You've grieved the Holy Ghost. And you've done damage to the unity of the Spirit. Forgiveness, repentance, and then forgiveness is the only way out of this one. That is the importance, the severity of this. So now he moves, he'll go on, he'll go, once again, I do not have time to go through all of these. But he'll get down, he'll move from the individual level, and he'll start going into some groups. And the first, or the main group that he's going to deal with is that of the household. Now you say, well, Brother Andrew, what does all that have to do with the unity of the church? I will tell you something. That is, if your house is divided, you cannot be a benefit to the unity of the church. If your family is part of the church as a familial unit, and to where the majority, if not all, of your family members that you live with on a daily basis is part of the church, you cannot have a disruptive and ununified home and expect to help the unity of the church. There's no way. And he'll get down, he'll get down to the nitty-gritty of it. The nitty-gritty of it. If your spouse is with you, you might want to grab their hand and squeeze it. It's a little rough. He goes down and starts talking about things we don't like to talk about in our culture today. And that is gender roles. He starts to talk about and divide some lines here. Once again, keep in context, folks. Please keep in context the unity. Endeavoring to keep the unity. So he gets down here and he starts talking about God-given creative order. Now let's go down and read it. It's, it's very familiar. But I want to read it and go through it a little bit here. Verse 21 of chapter 5, submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God, you will note that he's on that moment, he is on the individual level. We are to submit ourselves one to another. I'm to submit myself to you, and you're to submit yourself unto me one to another as an individual. He then beautifully crosses over into a group setting and says, Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. Now, why does he go into a group setting, to a familiar setting at that moment? Because Paul recognizes, as I said, you will not have a unified church with disunified families. Try as you might, you cannot build a church on the bedrock of disrupted or destroyed families. You cannot do it. 
At the heart of churches, you have to have strong familial units. It is of utmost necessity. That's why when the church churches are formed, you need to find men, and not just any men, men who are fathers and husbands, who have been around for a while, have raised children, have lived with a wife, done all these things. Those will be the bedrock of your church. So he goes on, wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of the water by the word, that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle, or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish, so ought men to love their wives as their own body. He that loveth his wife loveth himself. Now you will note the two distinguishing characteristics of the gender roles. Honor and love. Honor, respect, you could he terms it respect as well. Submitting yourself and love. Now, we know, as we've studied many times, that word love is not just a simple word of love. It's not philo love, and it's not eros, or sexual love. It is agape love, which is a big one. But he goes on, and he says, once again, honor and love are the two defining characteristics of marriage. Once again, unity of the church has to have strong marriages. And if you and your spouse are part of the church, this is not optional. This is not optional. You want to sow discord in a church, get a husband and wife who are brother and sister in Christ fighting with one another. And let that go unresolved. Let that go unfixed. Soon everybody in the church is going to know it. And soon if you're not careful, men and women in the church are going to start picking sides. And then there's going to come a break, a division, a crack right down the middle of the church, all because somebody wouldn't submit and somebody wouldn't love. Those are the two errors that we can make. Husbands, you didn't love good enough. Wives, you didn't honor good enough. That's what the book says, not what Brother Andrew says. That's what the book says. If you're having a problem in your marriage, either the wife is not honoring or the husband's not loving or a mixture of the two, but that's your only two options. Well, I think it's a little more complicated than that, Brother Andrew. Oh, it may be more complicated in the details of it, but it will all come back to wife, you're not honoring, husband, you're not loving. That's where it always comes back down to. And if you can get people, if you ever do marriage counseling, or if you ever have to talk with somebody or help somebody, if you can ever get them back to those two main staples, you will find the heart of the problem. And that's where you can start restoring things. Get the husband and wife on the same page of their duties one to another. Now, I do not have time to do a marriage sermon. This is not what it's meant to be. So please, this will be quick. But husbands, your love to your wife is to mimic the love that Christ has for the church. That's a big one. That's a lot of love. <laughs> That's a lot of love. In other words, your wife, your wife should know the depth of your love. Your wife should know how much you love her. You should make it known unto her. Why? 
Christ makes it known unto us. He shows us daily, by the second almost, how much He loves us. If we, as the bride of Christ, just stop and think, Brother Cottle, of all the blessings that God has done for us, that Christ does for us on a daily basis, we instantly know how much He loves us. Now, the problem is, is when we don't stop and think. Now, that can be an issue. But your job, husband, is not to do your wife's part, all right? Your job is to do your part. And your part is to love your wife as Christ loves the church. How do I do that, Brother Andrew? Well, then you've got a lot of study to do. You've got a lot of study that bypasses this sermon right here. You need to get in that book, and you need to find out exactly how Christ loves the church. You find that out, then you'll know what you need to do with your wife. Now, wives, your job is not equally less or equally easier either because you have got to submit to your husband. Your husband, that is not Christ. It's easy to submit to Christ, usually. Usually. But it's easy for us to submit to Christ. The hard part is that you know for a fact you're pretty well convinced that your husband is not Christ. And you're, you're pretty convinced of that one. You, you know for a fact he's not perfect. He's not all-knowing. He's not everywhere at all times. And he sure don't know everything that's going on. So you understand very well that your husband is not Christ, but yet you are called to submit to him in the same way that you submit, that the church submits to Christ, and you're part of the church. So you submit to Christ, and that's exactly how you're supposed to submit to your husband. Now, once again, if you want to know exactly what that looks like, you need to get in the book. Find out how the church submits to Christ, and then you can know exactly what you need to do. But you will not, please hear me, Please hear me. If you want to be a help to the church, your marriage has got to be on point. If your husband and your wife, if husband and wife, they are joined together in the church as a brother and sister in Christ. I know there are situations where you have an unsaved spouse and there's nothing you can do about it. That's not exactly what I'm referring to right here. That's not what I'm referring to. But if your wife or your husband is part of the church with you, you will not be a help to the church unless your marriage mimics that of Christ and the church. You will be a hurt. You will harm the unity of the brethren if you do not have this done. The beautiful thing about this is these things start to overlap some. Because if you are, to, you are to be so good to your brother and sister in Christ in the first part of chapter 4 and later in, in early part of chapter 5, all these things that you're supposed to not do or to do to your brother and sister in Christ, if your spouse is saved, you're obviously supposed to do that exact same thing to your sister and brother in Christ, whether it be your husband or your wife. It doesn't make a difference. In other words, I am not allowed to lie against my wife. If for no other reason, is because she's part of the church. And the Apostle Paul told me, lie not one to another. She's part of the church. Can't do that. I can't steal against her, obviously. Which also means I can't let no corrupt communication proceed out of my mouth about my spouse. Why? If for no other reason, they're part of the church. Now, this is where it gets a little sticky. You have got to be very careful 
how you speak about your spouse. Because you're the one that knows the most about them. You're the one that knows their darkest secrets for the most part. You're the one that knows their struggles. You're the one that knows where they have the hang-ups the most. You're going to be the one that's aggravated with them the most. You're going to be the one that's frustrated with them the most. They're going to hurt you more than likely more than they've hurt anybody else. Why? You're with them the most. You live life with them. There's more opportunity to hurt one another in marriage than there is in any other life given with another person. You have more opportunity to hurt your spouse than you have opportunity to hurt anybody else in the world. Which means, as imperfect creatures as we are, there will be more hurt than there will be against anybody else in this life. Which means your tongue about that person, whether it be husband or wife, has got to be extra on guard when the subject of your spouse comes up. Because I can guarantee you, if you've had a bad day with them, and the subject of your spouse comes up, if you're not careful, it will not be nice words that come out of that mouth of yours. I will tell you something. There's a good way to judge this. Brother Andrew, how do I know? How do I know? Because there are certain times that you do have to speak about your spouse in an unflattering way in order to get something resolved. I understand that. There may be times you have got to seek counsel. And the only way you can let the person know what you're dealing with, so to speak, or the position you are in, is to talk rather, rather unkindly about your spouse and say, I've got this problem, and this is what's going on in our home. Now, your attitude and your, your demeanor and your spirit about it goes a long way, but you yet still have to utter unflattering words. There's a good way to judge it. Could you hold that same conversation? With Christ himself. With Christ himself. Could you say those exact words about your spouse that you just said to somebody else, whoever it may be? Could you drop to your knees and pray the same prayer? Now, I will confess, and I'm sure there are many others in this room who will confess and say, there have been times, no. No. Well, Andrew, it's, it's not that big a deal. I'm just venting. That's all I'm doing. I'm just venting my problems. You know, I just got to get it off my chest. Then why don't you go to God? And is there a closer friend that you could talk to about the situation? Is there somebody else who could know more how to help you? Is there anybody in this world that could give you better advice? Or is there anybody in this world that could sympathize with you more? No, there's not. But we usually find we don't like going to Christ to vent, so to speak, or to get these things off our chest because we're not really looking for a solution. We want somebody to back us up. And we want somebody to know just how bad my spouse is. I've got to tell somebody. I can't keep it to myself, and if I tell Christ, he's not going to tell anybody, so that won't work, so I've got to go do it myself. I've got to let this one go. 
got to let it fly off the handle, so to speak, and I've got to let people know just how bad my spouse is. Now, I know you say, brother, it's not that bad, or I'm just, once again, just venting, I'm just letting it off my chest, no harm done. Wrong. Wrong. Harm is done. Now, when that brother or sister you just, quote, unquote, vented to, views your spouse, they will view them in a lesser manner. You know what you just did? That, you know what that means? You blasphemed them. You have caused that person to have a lesser view of your spouse now. You have hurt their character. Things that should have been kept in marriage, kept in the confines and the safety of the marriage, have now been let loose. And now if the person that you just vented to is not mature enough and knows how to deal with that, you are causing a crack. You have just drove a wedge and hit it the first time with the hammer to crack this thing open. There is no quote-unquote just venting, folks. That doesn't exist. If you really want something off your chest, take it to God. Leave it there. I will tell you this, you have no reason whatsoever to talk ill of your spouse to anybody but God. I'll give you that right there. You have no reason whatsoever. Put it in the context of marriage. Does Christ go around talking about how the church disobeys him all the time? Does he vent off to God all the time? Well, they're so, oh, they're so aggravating. So hard-headed. Man, they never do what I tell them. They never listen to me. No, we find the exact opposite. We find Christ, what is he doing? Interceding for the church in the courtroom of God. Now, we're the ones that keep aggravating him. We're the ones that keep letting him down. We're the ones that keep disobeying him. And yet, when we find him before God, the Father, the judge of all, he's interceding for us. Husbands, no excuse. No excuse to talk ill of your wife to somebody else. I don't want to hear an excuse. There's none found in Scripture. Wives, what does it look like? Does the church go around, the true church, go around and start blaspheming Christ? No, God forbid. How should such a thing be? The church does not go around, oh, Christ, he never does anything for me. He's always doing this. He doesn't love me and this, that, and the other. No, 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 and we go. That's not the picture we get of a good church, of a faithful church, of an obedient church. No, none of that. No, we find that joy, that rejoicing. We find that praise. We find that honor is always to be present in the church. And the church is not to go to the world and start complaining about our Savior. Now, that's the picture. So, wives, you have no right to talk ill of your husband. To anybody else. Keep it in the confines of marriage. Well, it's eating at me, Brother Andrew. Then go get it fixed. Go to your spouse and get it taken care of. If not, you will hurt the unity of the church. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about this. There's no secret way out. There's no way to avoid this. If there is conflict in the marriage... Take it to God and get it fixed. 
but God only. Otherwise, you will hurt the unity of the church. Then he goes on, says, children, children, obey your parents. Honor your father and mother. This is equally part of it, because if you've got a familial unit in the church, you've got children in the church. And did you know that children can harm unity? Did you know that children can break up the unity of the home if it's left unchecked? And if it's left unchecked, children can break up the unity of the church. Now, it should never be that way because the parents should be mature enough to step in between the division and say, all right, that's enough. Well, that's silly. You don't need to be doing this. Stop being so immature. Don't act like a child. Blah, blah, blah. On and on and on we go. Many different answers you can give. Slap upside the head, whatever you want to say. But a lot of times we as parents, and I'm guilty, we as parents see our children as angels and every other children as demons. And so my child never does anything wrong in the context of other children. Now, when we're at home and it's just us, our children do wrong all the time. But if they're interacting with other children, our children are right. All right. You, it's like, Brother Andy, you know. Okay. My child's right. You know that. All right. You know. Just understand. And so our child's the angel. Every other child's a demon out to get my child. Once again, how selfish can you be that the whole world is pitted against your child, which then pits it against you? It's back to selfishness. You're really not interested in the well-being of the child. You've just been hurt because that's your kid, and they've hurt my kid, which means they've hurt me. So now I'm going to go beat that little kid up. But that's what the end result is, folks, okay? You can say, well, that's not really how we act. I've seen it enough to know that's how we act. That's how we act. My child's an angel. And if there's any conflict with another child in the church, my child's not going to be the one in trouble. I can guarantee it. I know it. Once again, we say, well, I actually don't believe that. I mean, I know my child's got learning to grow. and But when the conflict arises, we automatically, if we're not mature, and if we're not capable of separating ourselves from the situation, we automatically, instantly start to think negative of that other child. Instantly. It's almost like it's automatic, because it is automatic. That's the devil on your shoulder talking to you, trying to, trying to drive that crack in. But instantly, we all automatically think, that other child did my child wrong. I know she did. I know he did. I know it. But if we're mature, and if the parents we should be, we should be able to say, whoa, hold on a minute. There's a conflict, which means there's a fault. And if there's a fault, that means somebody did wrong. Now, I know my child well enough, they are very capable of doing wrong. And I also know other children, that they are very capable of doing wrong. So I'm going to be a wise judge, separate myself from the situation, play the referee here and say, all right, you did wrong or you did wrong. And if it's my child, I'm going to go home and correct it, make it right. If they need to issue an apology to the other child, they will do so. If it's somebody else's child, that's beyond my domain of authority. So I'm going to now teach my child how to deal with conflict not try to fix the other child. That's not your job, all right? Leave other people's children alone, okay? It's not your job to fix them. You're not their parent. Leave that to God and their parents. Fix your child, because I guarantee there will be a time in your life when that child will not have you to come to their aid and fix things. 
and they won't be able to fix that other person you're fighting with at work. So you know what you need to do? Learn how to deal with it yourself. Parents, teach your children how to resolve conflict. They're going to need it. They're going to need it a lot. So now back to the children, though. Children. Now a child is anybody that's under the authority of their father. I don't care how old you are. If you're in your father's household, you're under his authority. If you don't like it, well, there's a way to fix that. You find yourself a wife, you find yourself a husband, you get married, and you get out. But if you're under, if you're in your parents' home, once again, I don't care how old you are, you're under your father's authority. The Bible treats you as children. I'm sorry, guys. I understand. That hurts, okay? I'm not that long ago from being a young man. I don't like that either, okay? It was not fun. It's not good. It doesn't hurt. It hurts the manhood. I understand all that. I know there are some, some ladies that have an issue with it, but majority of the time, the men, the young men in the home, that really kicks them. You know, that, that really hurts. But the fact of the matter remains. If you're under your father's authority, if you're in your father's home, you're under his authority. You are to abide by his rules. There are two things that you are to do, honor and obey. Honor and obey. Now, obedience is reserved for solely when you're in your father's home. Because when you exit your father's home and start your own family, you are not called to obey your parents. You still have to honor them. Obedience is for only for those that are under authority. And if you're outside your father's home, you're no longer in authority of that father. So once you separate yourself from them, the obedience in the sense that you have to do everything they say is what I'm getting at. You have to do everything they say because you're under their authority. I'm sorry, the scripture tells us that if you, you are to leave your father and mother and cleave to your wife, that you twain shall be one flesh. In other words, you've just created another, established another order of authority separate from your father. But the call to honor them will always be there. Always. Honor your father and mother. When it's given in the Ten Commandments, there is no ifs, ands, or buts about it or time frame put upon it. Honor your father and mother. Now, that goes the same as the marriage situation. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter whether you think they're worthy of it or not. You honor them. Brother Andrew, they were awful parents. They did this. They did that. On and on and on we go. Bum, 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 Once again, I'd like for you to find that argument in the Scriptures. That the doings of somebody else cancels out your obligations. That argument is nowhere found in Scripture. You, are, you have obligations to fulfill regardless of what everybody else does. And the same goes for children. You have an obligation to honor your father and mother. It doesn't matter what they do. And if you're under their household authority, you have an obligation to obey them. Obey them. Now, I'm going to let you guys in on a little secret. I don't know if you know this. You may not know this, so I will let you know. Did you know, shocker, that your parents aren't perfect? I know that's shockingly just mind-blowing. But do you know, I'm talking to the ones that are under authority, under obedience. Do you know that your parents aren't perfect? Do you know that they actually make mistakes? That they make wrong calls? And that they don't live a perfect life. Now, once again, 
I'm not talking about perfection in the sense of sin. I'm talking about imperfections of humanity to where we don't know everything. We don't know all that's going to come, and we don't know what's going to happen down the road. So we can, as parents, I can speak as a parent, we're, we're very capable of making a mistake, and we are not perfect. But I'm going to let you in another secret. Neither are you. Neither are you. Now, out of the two imperfect souls, people, that we have in this situation, who do you think is better qualified to make the deciding decision? Now, we have established your parents aren't perfect. We've also established that you're not perfect. So, therefore, if they're both are, they are both imperfect, well, that doesn't qualify either one to make a decision. All right, well, that's out the door then. So, if both imperfect parties come to a disagreement of what to do, who should be the one to make the deciding decision? Well, that would be the one with the more experience, wouldn't it? Well, I'm sorry. I hate to break it to you. I know you've lived a long life. But you don't have more experience than your parents. You don't know as much as them. Therefore, that burden falls to your parents, not you. I really don't care how much you think you know. You really don't know. Once again, I'm not that far removed from being a young man under authority. And I understand the thoughts that roll through the mind. And I look back to the coddle, hang my head, and say, how dumb was I? How ignorant was I? I remember looking back on my parents, saying, man, when I get to be a parent, I sure ain't going to do that. Man, I sure ain't going to do that. I am not going to raise my kids like that. I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. And then I found I have had to fight the exact same battles that I saw them fighting. And if I would have listened, and then I look at my children and say, why won't you listen? And then I think back to my father. Why won't you listen? In other words, my father has fought that battle. When I think he was doing something irrational, he's fought that battle. He knows exactly what he's doing. And then I'm over here now on this flip side saying to a child that thinks they know what they're doing that you don't know what you're doing. But this is how it works because as a young person, we have a tendency to think more highly of ourselves than we ought to think. Now, anybody that's older can say, yeah, that's right, Brother Andrew, because I did that. And I can see it in a young person, the pride and the arrogance and all this, that, and the other that flows through that man or that woman, young man or young woman's mind. I can see it as clear as day. I mean, it's painted just a beautiful picture of it. I can see every outline of their arrogance, every outline of their pride, and that they don't know what they're doing, but they think they know what they're doing, and they're headed down the wrong direction, but they won't listen to me. And on this and that, we see all of it. But yet, I can guarantee you one thing, that young man or young woman does not see it. They don't see it that way. So the Bible, once again, in God's brilliance, made a safe spot for that, a correction for that. We'll give the authority to the one who has the most experience. That would be the parents. And so now the parents has 
the burden of making, once again, the final decision. Now, I am sorry. Once again, I do not mean to burst any bubbles, young folks. You do not have an authority, reason, or any what, any, I'll just leave it at reason. You do not have any reason whatsoever to ever argue against your parents if you're under their authority. The book doesn't give you one. Sorry. Now, I understand when you get older and you can make and you see things that your parents may not know, but you do know, you can very honorably, very lowly make an appeal to your parents. Just like a wife can make a wise appeal to her husband. But never argue. Never argue. You're outside the book if you are arguing with your parents. You are threatening the unity of the church by arguing with your parents. Well, I don't see it's not that big a deal, Brother Andrew. It's that big a deal. The Apostle Paul puts it in the same context. That if you want to harm the unity of the church, argue with your parents. Why is it that automatically when the decision is given or the rule is given by the parent, automatically, and young people, you understand what I'm saying, you feel the resistance boiling up within you, and you feel the need to backtalk, and you feel the need to say something against it, that's the devil. All right? That's the devil. And if you want to be on his side, go ahead. Spew off the back talk. Go ahead. Talk back to your father or mother. Go ahead. Argue with them. You've just engaged in demonic activity. You've become one with the devil. Be on his side. There's only one fix for that. Repentance. It's not really that big a deal, Brother Andrew. Repentance. Whenever you align yourself with the enemy's camp, that's a pretty big deal, you know? That's a pretty big problem, and you need to get that fixed. And there's only one way to fix it, repentance. That Christ may forgive you of it, and that you may not do it again. Now, as time gets older, once again, as you exit your father or mother's house, your obligation to obey them goes away. But you do have the obligation to honor them all times. I don't care if they're dead, you've still got to honor them. You've still got to honor them. Once again, guard your mouth. You know how, how many times we can dishonor our parents simply by talking ill of them? Guard your mouth. I understand there'll be situations that you say, well, I see where my father or mother made a mistake. And you can recognize a mistake. And you say, I don't want to make that same mistake again. That's not dishonoring them. That's taking their example and using it for the building up of your own family. It's dishonoring when you keep on talking about it and you keep on reveling in it and you keep on wallowing in it and you bring it up all the time and you can't stand your parents because of that mistake. That's dishonoring your father or mother. And then lastly, he goes on, and I'm closing. Ye fathers, in verse 4 of chapter 6, Provoke not your children to wrath. Bring them up in the nurture and admonition 
of the Lord. Now you will note here, he says nothing about mothers. He doesn't say fathers and mothers or parents. Provoke not your children to wrath. That's not what he says. He says fathers. Provoke not your children to wrath. Now why is that? Because the father is the head of the house. The father sets the tempo for discipline. The father sets the tempo for rule. He sets the rules of the home. A wife can make the wise appeal, but the father makes the ultimate decision. When it comes down to disciplining, the father can issue the rules that the mother can then follow for the children. Daddy says, this is the rule in the house. Therefore, the mother can be the enforcer of that rule. He, she can make it happen, so to speak. The father can, in generalization, the father can say, I want your room kept clean. He's just issued a rule. Keep your room clean. The mother can then step in, all right, this is how we're going to keep the room clean. So you put your stuff here, you put your stuff over here, you take care of this, you do this, you put this, put this, put that, because daddy says to keep the room clean. So we're going to keep the room clean. And the father and the mother obviously has the authority to correct a child that is in disobedience based upon the father's rules. So if the father says, all right, if they disobey, this is going to be their punishment. The mother has the capabilities and the obligation, in a sense, to then carry out that punishment. Once again, that's not Brother Andrew. That's the book. So, and fathers then carry the bigger burden on getting things right. The father then carries the bigger burden on setting the tempo of the home, setting the atmosphere of the home. The father has the bigger burden to make sure that the children are disciplined in the correct way, to make sure that the discipline that the father and mother are administering is correct, is not hypocritical, is not overbearing, is not too much or not enough. That's the duty of the father. Now, I know so many times as fathers, we go out there and we do the work of the day. We spend 8, 10 hours, 12 hours, sometimes even more on a job and work ourselves to death so much sometimes it seems. And when we come home, the last thing we want to do is deal with disciplining a child. And the last thing we want to do is caught up in all the drama that has been going on in the home all day. There's no way for you to escape it. I'm sorry. Such is the way of life. Put your big boy pants on and get to work. You have got a job to do. And it is not the duty of the wife to set the tempo of the home. That's the duty of the husband and the father. And if you want your children to act a certain way, stop looking at your wife to fix it. It's not her job. That's your job. My children are so undisciplined, and they spend 95% of their time with their mother, so I know it's her fault. Once again, you're talking bad about your wife, strike one. Strike two is more than likely your wife is doing everything she can to make it right, and you just don't know it, and you're too blind to see it. And strike three, it's not her job. It's not her job to make it right. If you see a problem in your home that you don't like, don't rely on your wife to fix it. That's not her job to fix it. It's your job to fix it. It's your job to take care of it. I don't like how my home is run. Well, you need to go look in the mirror and have a conversation with that guy because it's his fault. He's the one running the home or should be running the home. Well, I don't have the authority in my home because my wife, blah, 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 blah. Still, go back and look in the mirror. You're not doing something right. Once again, folks, 
Where in the Bible does it ever say, because somebody else is not fulfilling their obligation, you have a right to, be, to let go of your obligation? That's nowhere in the book. Well, i got a cantankerous wife, and you just don't know how it is, Brother Andrew. I don't have to know how it is. I can tell you what the book says. The book says it's your job. Get it right. Fix it. Pray about it. Fast about it. I don't care what you have to do. Get it right. Fix it. It's your job as the husband, as the father. So, yeah, as y'all, once again, closing quickly. The burden is on your back. The raising of the children, the path that they take, that is on your back. Your wife can help you bear that burden, but the burden ultimately rests upon the back of the father. And if you want your children to turn out right, you have got to set the right disciplinary tempo. And in doing so, you are not allowed to enrage your children. Now, that does not mean you can never make your child mad. Because if you do right, you are going to make your child mad and upset and aggravated with you. But the idea of enrage, the idea that, <coughs> excuse me, provoking them to wrath is this idea that you push them towards anger. You're there with a the cattle prod just poking them. On and on and on they go. They're already angry, and you're in there poking them, pushing them to get angrier and angrier. How do we normally do that? Through hypocrisies. Because when daddy issues an order, and they know that daddy don't follow that order, that's provoking them to wrath. Or children have an innate sense of justice, folks. All right? It's born within them. It's born within every human being. And they can know when something's not done rightly. They know it. They know when they got 12 and I got 10. They know when this person got this and I didn't get that. And they know when that, that daddy hurt me more than he hurt brother or sister. And they know daddy punishes me more than they punish her. And on and on, they know this, folks. They are not stupid. They are not blind to this. They are well aware. And so you are the one that the burden falls upon you, fathers, to make sure that justice is served in the home. To make sure that there is no favorite children, that there's no spoiled brats. To make sure that justice is flown across all children equally, one or the other. And to make sure that there's no hypocrisies in the home. That is your duty. It's not your wife's. It's not your children's duty. It's your duty to set the tempo of the home. And as such, you are the protector of your home. This is of utmost importance. I know I've been long, but bear with me, please, for a few more minutes here. Closing this one, last one out. You are the protector of that home. Your wife is not the protector and the spiritual protector of your home. You are. You are the one that should be governing what comes in and what goes out. If, goss if there's gossip in your home, you need to deal with it. If there's hatred in your home, you need to deal with it. If there's malice in your home, you need to deal with it. If evil gets in your house, it slips by you. It slips by you. If your children are partaking in evil things, it got by your guard. It is your duty to protect them. Which means you have to be utmost vigilant. Do not provoke them to wrath. You want to know a good way to provoke them to wrath? Lead them to evil. They'll hate you for it. 
till the day they die, they'll hate you for it. They'll be enraged against you every time they see you. There'll be anger and animosity if you let them go down the wrong path. You have got to know what's going on in your home. Now, I know we don't like the idea of a tyrannical ruler and a despot. We don't like the idea of somebody that's over everything and has their hand in everything. But I'm sorry, in the Bible, the home, the father, is a tyrannical ruler. And that he has his hand in everything. He knows everything that's going on. He's a despot. There's no other will but the will of the father. He gets his way. In other words, if he issues a statement, it will be done. You say, well, I don't like that, Brother Andrew. I don't think that's correct. And on and on and on. Once again, argue with the book, not Brother Andrew. But as, once again, that puts a burden on the fathers. You've got to know everything that's going on. Your eyes have got to be everywhere. Your ears always listening. Well, what, what, what are my children sounding like? What are they talking like? What's their conversation like? What's the conversation of my wife as I hear her talk to other people? What does she sound like? Does she sound happy, annoyed, aggravated, upset, discontented? My children, are they aggravated, annoyed, upset, discontented? What kind of words are they using? What's their spirit like? What are they saying to one another? The fights that are going on in my home, every home's got them. The fights that are going on in my home, what are they about? How can they be fixed? It's the duty of the father. Now, we've got a problem in this modern age. This thing. But I will tell you, this thing is not evil. It's not. It's a piece of plastic, some glass, some rubber, a bunch of little wires, circuit boards, and antennas. There's no evil in this. This has made evil accessible. Now, I understand that today's world has said that children need privacy. That is a lie from the devil. Children do not need privacy. And if you're in your father's home, I'm not talking about in some perverted way. You know, understand what I'm saying. But if in your father's home, you are duty bound to provide them with this, your phone, at any time they want it. Well, I don't like that, Brother Andrew. Well, I'm sorry. I am sorry. Your father has a duty to protect you. This is a gateway to evil. And your father or your mother, under the authority of your father, has the right to access this at any time they want. And as a father, you need to be aware of what your children are doing on this thing. Now, I am not up here. It is not my place as a pastor to tell you the rules for your house and that your children shouldn't have this until this age or they shouldn't be doing this and that. That's not my job. I don't have that authority. I can only give you the admonition of scriptures. I know this is a gateway to evil and that it starts at an early age. Earlier and earlier nowadays. And the things, the way it starts, it always starts in non-evil ways. Did you know, and for the major, most part, a lot of times, it's pornographic issues that we face with this type of thing, especially for young boys. 
But do you know that most young people do not access pornographic images on pornographic sites? It's not where they get it from. They get it from social media. The little playful sites that you let them visit. Now, I'm not placing blame. And once again, I do not stand here and tell you the rules for your home. But you need to know the dangers. And that the places that they are partaking of is the cesspools that this stuff begins at. Do you know that one of the most pornographic social media sites is Snapchat? There's data to back it up. This is not Brother Andrew. This is data. Do you know one of the second is Twitter? Pornographic. The third is Instagram. And then you can follow down the line. Facebook's on there. YouTube, I think, was either fourth or fifth, one of the two. On and on it goes. We're in a special generation. There are people growing up in this room who've never known a life outside of social media. I do. I was raised, I lived in a time when I got that middle break, so to speak, raised part of life without it, and then grew up the rest of life with social media. We are just now starting to learn the damage that social media does to young people because this is the first generation that young folks, children, are growing up with it. The data shows us that for young girls especially, they are especially negatively influenced by social media because they are comparing one another with each other. But they are, and the data shows that when you look at depressive episodes, anxiety attacks, or such situations in young girls, back in about 2011 and 2012, when the so main social media sites started, and it became available through the iPhone, particularly. At that time, the episodes of anxiety and depression shot up 162%. For children 10 to 15. I'm not talking about young adults. I'm talking about children. 10 and 15 are depressed and anxious because of things that come across this screen. Once again, I'm not up here being authority saying you have, to, you have to set the rules. That's your job. But you need to know the dangers. As the father, you need to know the dangers. And children, listen to me. If your father is issuing statements that you don't like, well, he, can't, he won't let me have my phone, and he won't let me do this, and he won't let me do that. Go back to the book. You're not to argue with him. And also, you need to understand your father knows evil more than you do. You need to understand your father has experienced evil more than you have. You need to know that your father knows the pathways and the alleyways that lead to destruction. You need to trust your father, and you need to trust your mother. They know better than you. If you argue against it, you do it to your own detriment. Once again... All this circles back to unity. We want a strong church, don't we, Brother Colin? We want a church that's on fire. We want a church that's built to the glory of God. We want a, built, a church that's built to save sinners, to edify one another. 
that has to be a unified church. And if the church is not unified, we have failed somewhere in Ephesians chapter 4, chapter 5, or chapter 6. We have failed somewhere here. You will not have a church that's unified if there's gossip going around. Kill it. Put a stop to it. So I'm not the one doing it, Brother Andrew, but do you listen to it? Are you in the conversation? Put a stop to it. Stop it right then and there. End it. You will not have a unified church if your marriage is falling apart. Fix it. Get in the altar. Bury your face in that altar until you know what to do to fix it. To know where you have failed in love or in honor. One of the two. Find the solution. You will not have a unified church if the children will not obey the parents and honor them. Children, you have a part to play in keeping this church unified. It is your duty. And if you fail in that duty, you can kill this church. You can kill this church. Oh, it's not that big a deal. I'll just let it go. and I'll be off and on and on. No, 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 no. The disunity you bring into this building can kill us if we're not careful. We should prize this unity. We should cherish it. And we should endeavor to keep it. Let's stand this morning. I know that was long. I told you I had a lot to cover. The answers to fix these things are simple, but they are no way easy. Well, it's simple. If you've got a broken marriage, husbands, love your wives. Wives, honor and submit to your husbands. That's simple. It's not easy. If you've got broken children, children, obey your parents and honor them. And fathers, don't provoke your children to wrath. Simple, easy. But it's, or simple, but it's not easy. We need Holy Ghost. We need Holy Ghost. But the more you look in the book and the more you find what's required of you, the more you should cry, Holy Ghost, help me. Holy Ghost, help me. I am incapable of being a good enough father to meet this book apart from Holy Ghost. Now, I can be a quote-unquote good father, and I can raise quote-unquote good children if I do it by myself. Sure. I can make that happen. But I will not fit this book. I will not do it to the level the book calls me to do it. I will not love you, and you will not love me unless Holy Ghost helps us. We will not put slander and gossip down like we need to unless Holy Ghost helps us. But the fact remains, He will be helping us, not doing it for us which means we will have to be partakers with Him to make this happen. And so when we hear the gossip, when we see the broken marriage, and when we see the children arguing with the parents, say, Holy Spirit, help me. Then get in there and do the work. The Holy Spirit helps. He does not do it for you. I want us to pray. And I want us to pray as a church standing where you are. I want our prayer to be this that we would endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit. Some of this may have hit you. Some of this may not have hit you. Some might not hit it at all, 
some, every point to it to you. I do not know. So I want you to pray in your own respective spot for yourself. I know we pray for one another, and we do that often, and that's good. That's great. But this is first an individual problem, and you need to make sure you're right. Brother Al taught it this morning that you can't help somebody with a plank in your eye. You can't go pull out a little splinter if you've got a two-by-four sticking out of it. So we're going to take the two-by-four out, and then we're going to see if we can help anybody else. So our prayer is, Lord, help us, Holy Spirit, help us to endeavor to keep the unity and show me where I'm breaking that unity. Now, if he's already shown you repentance, repent of it, don't do it again, and fix it. Make it right. 